0: He played Caracan, his rating was higher, but from move
1: 17, the king's side was mine. Thanks to everyone who supports the podcast, their shares and reviews and Apple love. If you want to get more involved in all we do at U.S. Chess to empower girls and women through chess, please consider a tax deductible donation of any size to our U.S. Chess Women program and reach out to me with any questions. everyone welcome back to ladies night i am so excited to welcome women's international master luciana morales she's a three-time winner of continental youth championships and the first peruvian woman ever to qualify for the women's world championship she's also a passionate advocate for empowering youth and in bringing more girls and women into the game She was recently promoted to Classroom Manager at Chessable, and she's even visited our live U.S. Chess Women Girls Clubs to advance her work to get more girls and children into the game. Um, Luciana, it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast after talking to you so many times about what we can do to make this game more fun for everyone.
0: Thank you so much, Jen, for the invitation. I am the one who is super (laughs) excited. Um, What what a pleasure, really, to to be talking with you and, and, um, and yeah, I mean, we've been, uh, talking in different, uh, instances recently, um, about how to bring more, more everyone, uh, boys, girls, everyone to, to the game, but, you know, um, you are a, such an inspirational figure for so many, for me in particular. So I, am <laughs> internally screaming right now.
1: <laughs> oh, thank you so much. And I mentioned in the intro that you were the first Peruvian women to qualify for the Women's World Championship, but now you hail from Texas, right?
0: That's right. I, have, um, I came to Texas about 14 or 15 years ago <laughs> to study at university
1: and I have stayed ever since. Did your chess career and your chess successes um, have anything to do with you ending up in college in Texas?
0: Yeah, for sure. Um I um I was already going to college in Peru. I was going to to the oldest university in in Latin America, San Marcos. I was uh, in second year of political science and um well, I, I've always had wanted to to come to the US and around um around that time I I came across uh, uh information on Susan Polgar's uh tournament in Vegas. So I played the tournament uh over there I won a partial scholarship to Texas Tech which wasn't enough <laughs> to to bring me from there but it was a nice um it was a nice thing because it kind of got me curious about other opportunities, and so after a little bit of uh, research and and of course some some great opportunity for which I'm very grateful, I ended up recruited by the University of Texas at Brownsville. They were uh, starting their um, their collegiate um, team, and they were recruiting um, boys and girls from from around the world and I was lucky to be one. And that's how I ended up in, in, in Brownsville, Texas. And not only the scholarship was for my undergrad, but also for my master's. So I thought, I think, I mean, I mean, to this day, I think it's, it was like such a, such a great opportunity.
1: What were your focuses in college, both in Peru? And then how did it kind of shift when you moved to the United States?
0: I ended up studying um Government and communication. It was a double major. I remember when I was looking at the <laughs> at the list of uh, majors, I was interested in like maybe some switch to like art history or something, but there, that major wasn't available. But you know, government was kind of close to to political science, so that's what I chose. And later on, I realized that I was very interested in in communication um, from from like, um, from like a public relations, um, angle. Right. And, um, yeah. And that's how <laughs> I, I, I started taking more of those classes and yeah. And get that, that major, um, then for my master's, I got public policy and management, which in retrospect, I didn't enjoy too much, <laughs> um, but I thought it was it was a well grounded uh, major for graduate school, and it was a bit different from from the MBA. Um, again, in retrospect, maybe I should have taken the MBA <laughs> uh, instead of the of the public policy. But but I think I think it was very interesting because it did place me in a position where I was looking at uh, working in the in the public sector, in the nonprofit sector, and and I realized that. This was work that was very fulfilling to me. Anything that was mission-driven, anything that meant a, making a difference in a community or like helping an organization that makes a lot of positive difference um, advance—you know their goals—I I thought that was that was uh, that was work that I really really enjoyed. And and so, um, after all, it wasn't that bad to have like that major in in, in public policy.
1: How do you compare the college experience in Peru versus Texas?
0: Oh, man, that's that was different. Indeed, I enjoy the independence that both gave me because while I was in Lima, I was still living, you know, in, in my home. But because the classes were at such uh, different times, I had to spend most of the day on campus, um, which meant that, you know, um I I made a lot of friends and 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 um and also I think that there wasn't much time for extracurriculars although at that time when I was a freshman in in college in Peru I <laughs> um yeah so fun fact I decided to run for president of the of the class and for the first time we had like um elections Uh, I was the only, the only girl running. The other, the other candidates were guys, and I ended up winning. And um, I I don't know. I feel like there was a lot of time that I spent on campus, and there was a lot of uh, valuable relationships and friendships that I made, which I really appreciate from that time over there. Um, I do think that I didn't have, you know, other than that, a presidency year. I didn't have time for extracurriculars. Whereas here, when I was in the US, I really, really like how, how it went because I had um I had the time but also the interest to get into philosophy club, photography club. Um I don't know, I just tried to to make the most out of my my college experience. And I um I think I would have even entered in a music club if I knew if I if I if i could but um actually no i I didn't enter into such thing because this is one of my regrets in life not uh, learning to play instruments but i think it was it it was different it was more it was richer i guess my my experience in in college in the u.s because i in addition to the classes i was um, developing other interests and growing in those aspects
1: if you could just know any instrument right now by snapping your fingers, which one would it be? Violin. Violin, okay. Why? I think
0: it sounds to me like it can be both so so joyful and energetic, but also it can be so not joyful. <laughs> and um, I think also the fact that it requires so much dexterity to 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 master it, it that makes it just very alluring and and, and i admire like you know people who, who play that
1: absolutely well you have to start taking joint lessons with your daughter catalina i love it
0: <laughs> yes actually i do i do want to be more intentional uh, with her about like the type of um a type of more grounded education and i do want to expose her not just to like one thing picking <laughs> my case chess but like uh different things, and for sure music um yeah, actually she's she i I recognize i don't know, I think she has like an ear for music, um, she maybe you know, maybe it's too early, but I think she she moves to the rhythm of of music,
1: what I've noticed is a chess mom. Uh, and you know somebody who loves math like for the little ones it's so useful for them to have like five to ten minute lessons and that's why having like a musician or a chess player in the family is so great because it's logistically so difficult to get like a five minute lesson because like what's somebody gonna come to your house for five minutes and leave oh it's tricky (laughs) that that that's the hardest thing that's why it's like I wish uh you know well I guess friends that's the way to do it you need to you need to find a friend and invite them over for a good dinner and have them give like a five to ten minute lesson when the kids are like three or four
0: I love that idea and and you know what you're right the other the other day I was thinking about this how when I sit down to play with her um some activities like last just like minutes and then she's on to the next thing no like okay we just started here where are you going?
1: five to 10 minutes, definitely. Dr. Jeannie Singfield always used to say that uh, you can only talk to somebody for as many minutes as how old they are. So yeah, oh. I think a three, minute, a three minute lesson is perfect. And I, I feel like chess is like that too. And I, I've been giving my son like five to 10 minute lessons all the time, or just like not even a lesson, just like a game, um, doing like some chess notation. And I was just thinking, oh, I wish I had something like that for music. Because I also have that regret, actually. We share that in common. I have that regret, too. Because I love music so much, but I don't know anything about music theory or notes. And and uh, I do wish I learned it when I was a kid. What
0: What instrument would you have
1: played? I think the piano. I like the piano. I would love to learn the piano. Hey, maybe I'll do it, too. We will have to have a little music challenge. Yeah. No. <laughs> I read on your blog, um, on Chessable an interview with you that your mother taught you chess at six years old. And that's somewhat uncommon. A lot of times it is the father or grandfather or an uncle that teaches the children chess, of course, because more men play than women. But you do share that with uh, Viswanathan Anand, whose mom, mom also famously taught him chess and Judith Polgar, who was the uh, third Polgar sister and the first one to be taught by her mother. So Tell us a little bit about what you can remember from that time. Can you remember learning the pieces from her? Wow, that's that's super interesting.
0: I didn't know that Mothena and and, and Polgar had that. Um, so, I love my mom. I think she's not a very patient person. So, I do think that this was like something that. Um. um maybe later on when I was more aware, I was thinking oh, like, wow, like how my mom was like so impacted by chess. And, and um, the, the, the reason why she was so into chess was because she was part of, in the 70s of, of that, um, uh, that group of people, you know, that in the boom of uh, Fischer's, um, um victory over Spassky, like they got into chess. And so she... She was the only sister. She had three brothers. Um, she was one of the youngest. She was a third uh, sibling. And so when she was interested in chess, she wanted to play with with, uh, with her brothers. And, um, and her recollection is that, well, they didn't want to play with her. And uh, if, if uh, the, the one time that she beat one of them, like he um, threw the table, and no, the pieces, so that that was something that I I can I can only imagine you know how like she had wanted to to play and then she went to college, and um, she told me that she had met you know the Peruvian champion back then, and that uh, she admired that she was um, active and that she played uh, tournaments, but she herself didn't play. Um, I don't recall exactly like how she taught me. Like for instance, I can recall that one time she was trying to teach me uh, English, <laughs> and like she was not patient, and she was like, "Yeah, whatever." Um, well, <laughs> not like that, but you know, she wasn't very patient. But I know that you know, with 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 chess, uh, she she did a stick, and you know, we over the course of uh, several days, we would come back and like we would like play more. And at that time, I I wasn't really. Um, I guess I wasn't really getting it or, or I wasn't really into it. Um, but later on, you know, two years later, she, she registered me in this chess camp, uh, for summer school. And, um, in that more competitive environment, I started like enjoying it more. Um, so for me, my mom, not only like taught me how to move the pieces, but I think she also transferred that like sort of Passion for 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 chess because she she was just like super supportive and in you know even in a time that when she wanted to get some private tutor private coach for me I remember that one of like her first choice kind of like said no (laughs) I don't coach girls or whatever and um and she she got mad and like she she would later tell me not like <laughs> when i was a um a child um so she was she was very persistent in 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 giving me that opportunity that that uh chance to educate um to educate myself in chess and not only she get, she got me like coaches i mean she also she also got me like um she would also pay you know like uh, those um experts like stronger players in 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 Lima to play against me like you know uh, as a sparring practice as as to to have like that practice I mean I don't know I mean, I don't know if there was online chess or if online chess was popular in Peru at that time, probably not, so that's how I got my practice with with um with people who were like higher rated and 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 all and of course I was playing the the tournaments and I think she was very much into (laughs) into it Uh, and she also has a very strong personality so I also recall not wanting to go to some tournaments with her because I felt like uh, (laughs) I don't I I would prefer to go with my dad to to some tournaments I sometimes think, no, like if she had started playing in a different time in a different era, it would have been her, I guess, who got really into competitive chess, not not her daughter. No, she didn't have this opportunity for herself, so she made sure that I <laughs> that I had and that I stuck with it and that I
1: grew from it. That's really beautiful. That's great to hear. Well, maybe both of you would in another era. It's interesting because in a Wall Street Journal article I wrote a little over a year ago about. The chess boom and how um, it included people of all types and especially, you know, more girls and women than previously. Um, I mentioned that like the previous big boom in chess in America, the Fisher boom, did not include that many women. The percentage of women in the US Chess Federation at that time was tiny, something like three, four, 5%. Okay, now it's 12, 13%, 15% at the max, but, you know, that's still triple what it was at the time. It's a really big difference. And I mentioned, you know, that there were obviously some sexist remarks by Fisher and obviously the infrastructure of chess was like more sexist and there were fewer role models. So there's lots of reasons why women might not be as um, part of the boom as they are in like the current boom. But um, I love hearing about your mom because of course that's a counter example of a woman who was extremely motivated by Fisher's story.
0: Yeah, I am excited to tell you that she's still very much in love with chess. She plays chess online. She plays in (laughs) chess.com. And um, yeah, I mean, she's she's 1,200, I guess, rating.
1: Good, yeah. Okay, so she must be on Pins and Needles when she watches you (laughs) play. Yeah, she
0: definitely was when I was growing up,
1: (laughs) yeah. When you were growing up, um, you won a tournament that was open to both genders, um, the absolute under-16 championship in Lima. So was there a, a girls' tournament that was held at the same time and you chose to play the open one?
0: Oh, no. Um, there was only one section. I mean, and this was the the, the case uh, with um, most of the tournaments in, in Peru. I, I have been playing those tournaments, like the open section, since even earlier than, than 13. Um, but, for instance, like the the national the national tournaments, um I actually when I was ten, I won the under ten Lima championship, and it was also boys and girls um but the under sixteen when I was winning the under sixteen when I was thirteen, I think like that was like such a pivotal moment for me because I realized that. If I was able to beat like some of these top youth players in Peru, which you know happened to to live in Lima, um, there was there was future for me, uh, I guess in in um, in chess. And um, no, there wasn't really like a separate tournament. What they did was like um, the la, la mejor dama, like uh, the best uh, female. Mm-hmm. This person would be like. Would qualify to um, from the Lima Championship to the national championship, or like if 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 you were like the best uh, woman player, that was kind of like the equivalent of national um, champion. But I in those national tournaments, pick for like the absolute section, I would typically like fight for the first places. So like I would get like third, fourth place. My best one, I didn't win a national tournament, but my best one was second. I was second in.
1: In the Peruvian Youth Championship. Yes. Yes. Nice. And so when you won the Lima under 16 champion, they had to give a prize for El Mejor Hombre? <laughs> you would think, right? <laughs> but no, actually,
0: that that's a, that's a funny story. They so they gave me you know the trophy you know they 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 gave prizes to the top three and then they they gave like the best a female to some to some other girl which I I didn't think at the time that it was like wrong like I I, I just eh, whatever no but then my mom was like what does this mean that that you're not a girl like <laughs> that you know now you have transformed yeah, into a boy and, you know and, and so like as a matter of principle she thought like no like Sure, like she can get whatever uh, award, but like don't let them forget that you're a girl.
1: Your mom was a big advocate of yours. She's like, give yeah. my daughter both trophies because <laughs> she was number one and she was the best girl. People often ask me whether I think there should be a best girl prize, best girl trophy in these tournaments, and what I usually say is that rather than a trophy, I would prefer like something like depending on what the organizer can afford, a book, some kind of equipment, something that uh, allows the the female who's underrepresented to like, just kind of like pursue uh, more chess education uh, j- just because it, it wouldn't allow for a situation like that then. Right. Cause I remember, I think I once won like a top girl prize. And I think I was maybe one of the only girls in the tournament and my classmates were making fun of me. And hmm. at the time I was not like, not that high rated. So it, if if I had won like you know an expensive book or something, they wouldn't be making fun of me. That would be like the optimal solution, in my opinion.
0: I think definitely there needs to to be like on a case by case, no. Um, so for instance, uh, in these tournaments, like they gave you know the they gave me a trophy, you know they gave me like a nice thing uh, for the best girl. There was like a diploma, no. Uh-huh. Um, so, but I thought like that's kind of lame. No? <laughs> I mean just a diploma i guess yeah maybe like this this person didn't get you know like the same results and others but like what what type of message are we sending to this girl know that hmm, here's a diploma i don't know i think i think you're right like something more tangible i think a good would, would uh, probably provide an incentive yes tangible. i didn't think about it on in the on the sense of like yeah there, there would be voice that that like make fun hey you know we we made
1: Yeah, but it's also sensitive because you don't want to give something that's too gendered, like, you know, jewelry. Well, I personally don't actually have an issue with that, but I think some parents might not like it. If you give something that's too girly, um, you know, like traditionally girly, like a flowery bracelet or flowers. So yeah, it's a bit of a sensitive one. And I think that educational material is great because that is completely non-controversial. And let's face it chess courses, chess books. It's all extremely expensive. And it is nice, I think, to kind of like allow for um, an evening of the playing field there. you know, in poker, actually, this is a big thing because a lot of the guys are part of these cliques where they share information and they buy one course and their friend buys another course. And they like kind of like share each other's passwords to watch both of them. And I really do feel like girls aren't as usually part of those cliques. I think chess is different because people learn so young that the infrastructures are a little different. But yeah, that's something I've noticed in poker that a lot of times um, the guys are like, because there's so many more of them, they're like forming these little study groups. And that is so valuable to success, which is really a natural segue to your profession now, which is working for Chessable, which is all about kind of the science of learning. And you're a classroom manager um, where you work with such luminaries as Judith Polgar, um, but you're also an author. Um, You're working on a course about the great games of female players, obviously very dear to my heart. And through that work, you've studied a lot of the great games of the female world champions. Can you tell us some sleeper picks? Like what should we be studying? Whose games should we be studying? I'm working on my first chess
0: course and uh, the topic is the first five women world champions. I think the motivation behind it is that there, you know, when you are, when you're studying, when you're a growing chess player, you kind of have to know about the history. You have to know about Morphe and, and stay and everyone Um But it's rare that somebody (laughs) knows or like learns at a young age about um, their female counterparts. I mean, granted, um, there's less information about them. I'm finding that the the, the hard way. Um, While there is a lot of um, games and references about the very first woman woman who who became world champion, um, Vera Menchik, there is there is not as much on the next uh, three. Who are from Soviet uh, Russia, and um, what I think that what I was most pleasantly surprised about is the the nona the the games her games are just unbelievable. They're, I mean, from the from the very first uh, game that I'm gonna cover in this book, I mean, she's like less than twenty, and she's playing with the national champion of her country, Georgia. And she sacrifices first a pawn. And then she sacrifices like the rook, the knight. I I don't know, like it's like very natural and very much like Tal. I was reading a lot about her. And so I found this interview where she mentions that they made like some sort of uh, psychological test um back then and that uh, she had answers that were very similar to tal and um and i can see that i i think like um that their style is is very similar and um for me um working on this on this project has opened my eyes to 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 the amazing play that sometimes you know we it goes under our radar um and um, I mean, even Netflix, right? Like <laughs> they, they made this uh, horrible omission that apparently was recently uh, settled or fixed, but um, she definitely played with males and she definitely kicked some butts. Um, and the unusual thing about it is that it happened on over the span of many decades. No, she's there's longevity to her career. She still plays and consistent and consistent excellence. Also, I think that's that's incredible. So this particular project is about the 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 first uh, five uh, women world champions. Um, also, what I'm learning throughout the way is that they're also very interesting um, uh, players from that that you know their competitors. Um, I, I, I learned about Sonia Graf, uh, mostly, uh, actually, I mean, your book has been such, such an inspiration. You cover the, the stories and also like very, very cool insights about. Oh, this psychological <laughs> game too, I think. Um, so they have very fascinating competitors, um, for one reason or the other, they didn't become world champions. But for me it's been a very rewarding project because I think it also it also reminds me you now that there's like different types of legacy when you are in a in a sport. I may not have like become a world champion or like fulfilled other other goals of mine, such as becoming a woman grandmaster. But I think if I if I can make a little dent in the chess world by maybe helping document um some of the chess um, games of these women. I think, I think that's, I'm going to be proud of it.
1: Absolutely. I think it's so significant. And I'm glad that more people are seeing that. And I think that a lot of people are going to be interested in your course because of that, because they realize that these great women players have so much to teach us. Uh, and I uh, love what you said about Nona. Just such an incredible character. And yes, just like kind of recently in the last couple of weeks, um, Netflix settled with the legendary world champion, the first woman ever to get the Grandmaster title. Undisclosed amount. But the point is that somehow uh, Nona got paid for this error. And I'm sure Netflix made so much money from that series. (laughs) They could happily afford it. Yeah. I mean, as an artist, I have always had mixed feelings about this case. I think it was a terrible error that they omitted Nona's accomplishments, but I also feel that as an artist and an author, it's like really important for people to have the ability to make mistakes, right? Because otherwise, you know, it's really difficult to create things, especially if you don't have the budget of a Netflix, right? At the same time, people who don't have that budget are probably less likely to get sued too. So I guess it works both ways.
0: And, you know, um, it's such a shame though, because... Otherwise, I feel like the Queen's Gambit would have, would have really been the most, uh, the most impeccable portrayal of, uh, well, I don't know if the most impeccable, but I think overall it was like such, such, a, such an accurate representation of, of chess tournaments, of the chess player experience. Yes, there were mistakes here and there, but like how many times you get to see um, the actors like looking the part. No, I I think that it was nice how they curated the the body language, <laughs> the positions, and uh, I was reading your interviews, and and that opened my eyes to also other things. This was likely curated by a by a male, so it was a big improvement over over past chess depictions in media. But you're right, it wasn't like right
1: there um well it was fantastic I mean I thought it was brilliant I loved it I mean I've always said that but it's just like yeah the male gaze was non-withstanding maybe. I think I wrote I think I wrote in my in my book Chess Queens I wrote that it was a masterpiece despite the fixed male gaze not because of it. it I still think it's a masterpiece but maybe that doesn't mean that it couldn't have been better in some of the details if you know they had like included some games of women or included uh known as accomplishments. It's interesting though, because that kind of calls into question the definition of masterpiece. Because I think a lot of people would think like, oh, masterpiece means perfect. But I don't really think so, especially when you're talking about something like a series, because there's like so many like tens and thousands of elements that go into that, that I, I don't, I think it can be a masterpiece without being perfect. Right. But I, that's kind of like a philosophical debate.
0: I don't know. I feel like a lot of chess players, we are prone to think of things in like sorts of black and white, no? Like something either is something completely amazing and a masterpiece or something is like terrible (laughs) or not terrible, but just not there. And, and I think that, um, this is why, you know, understanding masterpiece as like something absolutely seamless or flawless it's so tempting, I think uh, my, myself included no like if um, if i if I hear that something is a masterpiece, I do think like, yeah, wow, well, if this gets the seal of approval from this, then you know it means that ninety nine percent is like a high percent, which reminds me that I was also reading uh in about poker and how like it also helps you kind of um better distribute your uh, the percents or how you feel about things, maybe. It's not really like 90% but it's more like 70%, 30%.
1: Yeah, yeah, it makes you very um keen poker does rather on gradation and um being able to calibrate percentages. So I certainly think a lot of chess players are thinking that way now. Like I remember seeing an interview with Fabiano where he said that he thought 80% of the time his opponent was going to be prepared for this line in the Berlin but the 20% that he wasn't, oh, you know, he has a good chance of winning, you know? So I, I really thought that sounds so much like a poker player. Like no risk 80% of the time and then 20% of the time, maybe you have a very good chance at a win. That doesn't sound like a lot, but you know, they're playing for these, uh, these thinner edges now when they're playing against uh, the uh, other very, very top players. Yeah, that is a lot like a poker player. Uh, but you know, the thing about chess and poker that's very different is that um, in poker, it's very dangerous to play in a way where you try not to make mistakes because it'll make you play really passively. And I guess the best analogy I would have for that is, suppose you play a really dry opening. I'm sorry, but say like, a, what's a really dry opening? I'm going to make you pick <laughs> a really boring, not boring, let's say peaceful, placid. How about French, uh, the, the exchange variation in the French? There we go. The exchange French. That was very diplomatic because nobody really likes the exchange French. Like, if you say the (laughs) London or you say the ready or the Catalan, some people are going to get upset. But you say the exchange French, it it really has no fans at all. So, um, sorry. (laughs) Sorry to the two exchange French fans out there. There is that line with like Bishop D3 and Knight C3 where you actually, in C4, I mean, there's a line with like C4 where you actually go for something. But that's beside the point. So, exchange French. The chances of you like making zero mistakes might go up compared to like a complicated knight or Sicilian right so that but that if you make no mistakes in a boring game, is that closer to a masterpiece than playing like a brilliant series of sacrifices in a Sicilian where you miscalculated one thing and they actually could have won so that's I think that's kind of the question right yeah i think I think safe. Safe play is not uh, very nice uh, for the spectator either, no? Yeah, although I guess in chess, eventually, it's, it's sure if you trade off your pieces and make a draw, then it's pretty boring. But it seems like even openings that people might think are like drier, they often explode at some point, And sometimes they can be just as interesting. I think in chess, if you end up playing a long game, it's pretty hard to play risk averse especially if there's a rating differential because your opponent's not going to collaborate with you to make a draw, right? Uh, whereas in other games, like for instance, poker, you could play more risk averse because it's not non—it's not binary. It's not like win or loss. So you could probably play a risk averse strategy and it wouldn't be as obvious um, that you're losing money. It might take a little while for you to figure it out. Whereas in chess, if you play really risk averse and passively, you're going to get slaughtered and it's going to be pretty clear. After a few games, or you know, a dozen games. But anyway, I am really excited about that course. I think it's going to come out in early 2023, right? Yes, yes. The
0: plan is to to release it uh, next year. Um, We started working on this this year, but um, no, there's there's so many projects on the table right now. (laughs) Yes, that has taken a a little delay.
1: And then you also have an Instagram account called The Mom's Gambit, which is about your life as a mom combining your work in chess uh tell us a little bit about that
0: sure so um I have been an Instagram user for quite some years now and um I'm one of those people that sometimes you know like get those reels and like are are, like in this uh spiral (laughs) of getting more reels and through that like I noticed that there are like people out there that uh, show you different things, you not know, like from Microsoft Excel um, hacks to uh, how Mahjong works and, you know, things that maybe you will not need on a daily basis, but it would be nice to, to know about. So um, in the case of chess, this is like something that is so beneficial and is so amazing. So why not more people <laughs> uh, get into this, especially, you know, um, young people and, and I thought like, hey, I'm gonna do something like that. And so I created this account, Mom's Gambit, uh, to to kind of like do reels to to show a cool uh the cool aspects of chess, not necessarily get too technical because uh most of the audience um out there not necessarily doesn't necessarily play chess. Um it's um it's a work in progress uh, right now. I'm like, um, I think I haven't uh, posted since the Olympiad. <laughs> and but um, I, I, I obviously want to, to be more more active with it. I called it Mom's Gambit because it was, I thought it was a brilliant suggestion by, by a colleague uh, that I work with. And I think it perfectly encapsulates, you know, the, the, two big uh, aspects of my life right now which is like my my motherhood and um uh, and chess i mean i'm in my 30s and and i have a toddler every day there's there's a little surprise there's something i'm sure that for my daughter too she's learning every day something new but for me too i think like this this is a very cool adventure and um working in chess of all it means that you know chess is a big part of my life of my 24 hours and um, yes I do have other hobbies such as uh, knitting. <laughs> but I think if I can if I can help um, bring more people and by, by sharing this um, dichotomy of you know life with a toddler and and chess,
1: I'd be happy to do it. One of the things we have a crisis with and oh well, Crisis might be overstating it, but um, we have a lot of, we have very few adult women who play chess Yeah, And I think they do have things to get from chess. And so like seeing that focus of like moms playing chess, really cool. A lot of girls play chess, but many give it up when they're teenagers and most give it up by the time they're adults. So I know that's a focus of chessable as well to kind of be that bridge for grownups who don't have as much time to do really efficient learning um by like spaced repetition and with these appealing courses. And so uh yeah, I think that that focus on getting getting women into the game is really nice. And you've also done a lot of work with girls. I mean, I saw some fantastic photos of you doing a workshop with girls in Mexico. Yes, yes. You also have I think a girls a girls club in Barcelona as well that you do online and you or helpful with us in our girls club, but yeah, tell me a little bit about the Mexico um, cross-cultural workshop you're doing. Texas and Mexico, right?
0: Yes, sure. So I am in a, in a great location in the U.S. S I'm um, I live in Brownsville, Texas, which is on the border. So very close to go to, to Mexico from here. And so I had this uh, a great opportunity to collaborate with uh, with the school on the Mexican side. And basically I pitched that, that I wanted to have a workshop for girls and, uh, you know, understandably they were like, well, but you know, we, we have like three girls in our chess club. We have a chess club, but like there's so many boys, why not making it open? And, um, and, we were, and I was like, well, um, <laughs> let's, let's try Right. And so to everyone's surprise, including mine, um, over 30 girls registered and, you know, I, and I, and I shared this with you before, like typically, you know, when, um, I, with my experience organizing events, uh, before, um, I have, uh, I have worked, uh, as I told you before with nonprofits, anytime you make community events, 40 to 50% actually get to attend in a, in a regular event. So I thought like, well, you know, if 30 kids. Uh, registered 15 will attend. No, (laughs) there were even more girls that, that went on that day. So that picture of me in the middle of 50 or 60 girls, I mean, that's, man, I I was so happy, so floored, so humbled that, um, that it, that it happened like that. I mean, I, I wasn't, um, that's not, I, I, that's not my experience, right? Like people, you know, don't, don't go to the events that they are SVPDS for, but these girls and more attended. So I thought it was a a great testament to the interest uh, that, that girls uh, have for, for chess. And we also made it like um, kind of wide in age range with the idea to, to bring more, more kids. But um I don't know. It was, it was very interesting. I I did uh, notice that, um, something that I was reading about, like the, the, the age where girls start, uh, losing confidence. So around eight, so between eight and 13, um, society tells us that, well, um, I don't know, the society tells us the things that they tell and don't tell us the things that, we probably should be hearing more. So eventually you know there's there is this there is this abandonment of of the things that we are good at. And I did notice though that the the little girls were like not very. Shame, you know how sometimes when you um when you have like older girls that the little girls don't really want to talk well in this case I think everyone got their chance to participate and and it was a, a thought uh uh it was one of the most thoughtful uh <laughs> exercises I I had um I had done in relation to to chess I made sure that there were different modules and and um and experiences and then that it wasn't just like let's teach you how to play chess because you know at the end of the day if you just learn how to play chess you eventually forget about it so um in this case um i was really intentional about bringing other aspects so for instance we connected with my colleagues in barcelona they talked about their experience you know how chess like is in their lives but they are still like successful successful professionals in their own fields you know and, even without chess. So I don't know. I thought it was nice to see, to see that, know, that there was a sort of sisterhood out there of uh, women that have in common chess, but like, um, they also have other, um, they're well grounded, right? It's not just, it's not their only d- dimension. And, and yeah, I mean, that, that was, that was a very cool, um, a very cool project which um i'm trying to make happen in 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 on my side of of the border um but honestly i don't know if it's going to 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 have the effect uh, that that one had no like i mean that, that that was amazing the turnout and everything and talking about barcelona the the project that you mentioned it's the girl power chess club we call that um an internal sort of chess club for, uh, ladies who work at Chessable. And, um, we used to meet every week to, to play chess, uh, to, to, to learn chess and, and, um, and also kind of foster, a a supportive um, environment. I think when you're, when you're learning something so complex and some, some, something so competitive as chess, it is actually useful to, to have, you know, like colleagues, peers who cheer you on. In one way or another, this is what we were having. I mean, we were trying to foster this very supportive environment. And I'm talking in the past because uh, we, we we have uh, taken a long break right now from from that. And also I've noticed that there are several Girl Power Chess Clubs. Uh, I've noticed uh, on Instagram that there are collectives of young girls and I think maybe a nonprofit organization that, you know, run circles with similar similar names yeah i mean it's all about fostering that girl power that
1: yeah it's great because i think that's good for the girls communities because a lot of times what they miss in their teenage years is that community we have a, a teenage ambassador for us chess women laurel aronian who's doing amazing stuff you like get a teen girls together for like a pizza party at one of our girls clubs and is like constantly messaging me new names of girls who want to join our, our group. And then there's uh, a group based out of Chicago, uh, Chess Queens United. We're doing a collaboration with them next week. Um, look on, look on YouTube to see more about that for our listeners. There's also the Unruly Queens and there's Femme Chess and their Femchess Chess is San Francisco, Unruly Queens is New York City with Ellen Wang. And then there's also, um, Chess Girls. And yeah, you're right. They're all basically founded by teenage girls. And I think it's great because. It's like they continue their chess, they make friends, and they also kind of bolster their college and high school applications because it shows that not only are they good at chess, but they're good at like bringing people together with chess and helping make the chess world more equitable. Hitting two birds with one stone, right? I mean, they're like, oh, I hate that analogy because I like birds. But <laughs> a double attack. Let's just call it a double attack. A double attack.
0: Oh, I like that. And I think, Making chess more equitable, I, I, I like that. It's um, it's more needed now than ever, don't you think?
1: For sure. I mean, I think that it makes the world better. And then also the people who get chess, who um, come from underrepresented backgrounds in the game, can often do even more with it in terms of improving their lives, even if they don't become chess professionals. Because it shows... Um, you know, helps on their college applications. That's the thing about chess. It's just so good for applications, whether it's a job or for college. So if you're looking for like scholarships and a leg up, I mean you are a living proof of that, right? It really helped you um, on your trajectory. It helped me too. Uh, I went to NYU and I got some scholarships based on my my chess. And I really needed that because it's a very expensive school. So yeah, I think it's it's really helped a lot of people. I think Magnus Carlsen famously said something about how the rest of the world thinks that chess players are so smart. And while it's not always true, it's okay to let that illusion live a little longer.
0: Oh, I like that. I I didn't know that, but I I completely agree. I think that um, it's a vehicle for empowerment. I mean, it definitely opened opportunities for me, opened many doors. And I know like it can can continue to, uh, you know, as generations advance and everything, We see those positive impacts in Latin American uh, players. I work on different things in in different projects in chessable, but I think the one that is closest to my heart is the FIDE Chessable Academy because uh, with these we get to we get to work with kids from all around the world. Um, These are youth. and there are 16 boys and girls and they get nominated by their federations. And, um, we were able to connect them for weekly lessons with renowned FIDE senior trainers and also with testable courses. But in some cases, you know, I have the opportunity to get to know them a little bit better or like talk with them. Um, I don't know, because we're activating courses for them or we're recommending courses for them. And, um, it's been really even inspiring, you know, because you see like young kids that are so, so into chess and maybe some of them are like already playing, you know, tournaments. Uh, I don't know, a year ago I met this, this girl, like now she's like uh, uh, number two in the world or, or number three. I don't know, like she's, she's already doing really well. But like there is also other kids that for, for whom like these opportunities to get better at chess represent a different type of impact or life-changing effect in, in their lives. So it's very meaningful work. It's like tangible impact type of thing.
1: It's crazy how great chess is at connecting the world. We saw that especially during the pandemic, but remains true. And I love all the work that you're doing, Luciana. I, I feel like the chess boom is amazing because it brought all these incredibly talented people who would succeed in whatever world they were in it brought some of them back to the chess world. And I, I certainly think that's the case with you. And it's great to have you doing such good work and to see your, your positivity in the face of, you know, what sometimes is a bit of a misogynistic or an old fashioned world, but you're part of the change. And it's really great to have you on ladies night and I just have you in chess. So there's a lot of ways that you can follow Luciana. We mentioned her Instagram account, Mom's Gambit. We mentioned her chessable work, um, and then um, you're also, of course, on Twitter at Luciana Morales. And you're going to post all the updates about your course and any other kind of fun stuff you're doing there. I'm sure, right?
0: Yes, yes, definitely will do. And um, Jennifer, again, thank you so much for for this space, for sharing this space. And I have uh, I have tweeted this at you before, but I am in awe really at everything that you do. And you like creating all of these opportunities and inspiration for, for others to also continue advancing chess. I think it's, it's magnificent. And, and um, thank you for, for being our, I like, uh, I'm going to bring, I'm going to bring this up. Josha told you like you're kind of like Madonna. You're Madonna.
1: (laughs) Oh, that is so kind. Josha. Yes. She was a previous guest like two episodes ago. I think she's amazing. Love her uh, passion for the game. And of course, she called me the Madonna chess, so I have to love her.
0: <laughs> yes, <laughs> if I may add, I'm gonna I'm gonna share this with everybody who is listening. <laughs> Many months ago, I interviewed, Jen. I think it was uh, one of my first interviews for. Um, I think it was back then for the ICC. I was playing in ICC, and like, and Jennifer was kind enough to to give this interview. It was uh, shortly. I think I don't know 2004. Shortly after the the women's World Championship, I played in lista and that you were there too.
1: Uh, and you interviewed me or I interviewed you? No, I interviewed you. Ah, okay. Wow. We got to find that interview. I wonder what I said.
0: <laughs> you know, I, I do actually, I do, I do remember some of, uh, some of your answers about like combining the, the masculine with the feminine. Uh, I think you were citing Shu Chen. And how would you describe yourself? And
1: you said the, the, the name of your first book chess bitch, yes, yes, yes I like yeah. that, yeah, I still love that title um I ve- definitely vibe with that. I just think that because I'm trying to reach so many girls, it's good for ch- chess queens is a great title for girls, and also bitch, I was made very aware, you know chess is a very international game, but Bitch is a very has a very specific meaning in the United States that it it's got this like feminist connotation in some circles, but that doesn't translate into a lot of other languages. I'm really happy with chess queens, but I stand by (laughs) my personal description as a chess bitch. I love that. I love it.
0: Yeah, no, I, I I I hear you. I think that uh, when when I was in the US, I learned about this more feminist, progressive connotation of, of of the word bitch, like you know, also about how bitches get things done. No, and I was like, yeah, so that also involves me. I get things done, <laughs> but like yes, uh, maybe like you said in other languages, it doesn't doesn't sound uh, the same way, but proudly getting this
1: <laughs> this vibe, yes. Well, thanks again to Luciana Morales of Chessable, classroom manager, author, women's international master, and a great ambassador for the game. Thank you so much for joining me on Ladies Night. Till next time. Thank you so much, Jennifer. If you like what we're doing at US Chess to encourage women and girls to explore STEM fields, accentuate competence, and approach an even ratio with a focus on intersectionality, your donation to our US Chess Women programs is always appreciated and tax-deductible. The U.S. Chess Suite of podcasts, including Ladies' Night, are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Don't forget to listen and subscribe to all U.S. Chess podcasts from One Move at a Time, Cover Stories, and The Chess Underground. Till next time, may every night be Ladies' Night. Now according to Sockfish I got it all wrong After slightly advantage I had nothing But my dear Capablanco You tell me We'll learn more from our defeats Who needs victory?